Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to read from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And Lord willing, this is the first uh, in the next eight days that I will have the privilege of uh, reading this passage to you as uh, we'll be looking at it again on uh, Christmas Eve. But John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, 1, 1. In the beginning of the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. Beginning. Through him all nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not that light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling. We have seen his glory only Son who came from the Father and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Through Moses. Grace and through Jesus ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Over the next four or five days, depending on your family tradition, your with someone. Uh, uh, there will be in your living room wrapping paper and bows everywhere. It will be a disaster area. Some of you, when someone puts a package in front of, your, uh, in front of you, Shred. Others of you take your finger and you look for that. Whatever you do, gentle peelers drive rippers terribly crazy. They frustrate them to no end. In time, it can also that is filled with a little tension because some people wake up on Christmas morning with a lot of expectations, expectations that vary. Some of you are hoping for very practical gifts. That's what you want. You want something that you need. Don't give me something that I don't need. I only want what I need. And therefore, socks and underwear are the best Christmas present I could imagine. Some of you are like that. You would never yourself because, of course, it's too expensive. 
having it. But if somebody else were to buy it for you, that would be great. Lavish gifts. Some of you uh, like homemade gifts. Prefer a gift that show that you are known and that you are loved. The hope of everyone who gives gifts moment of delighted surprise, right? You want it to open smiles. Oh, wow. Thank you. You know, that tender-hearted person in your family will cry, right? Tears will come down to their eyes, out of their eyes as, as they see this thing you have given. You want there to be that moment of, of astonished, happy, delighted surprise. We read from John chapter 1 this morning, um, not chapter 3, but I want to encourage you this morning by talking to you today and next week about the significance of that very famous sentence from Jesus. He said, you know it, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John intends you to read John 3.16 with that same sense of awe and surprise. Wow, really? This is amazing. This is exactly what I need. This is, this is too much. It's lavish beyond all compare. This is something that God has given that's not just his time and energy and skill. This is God himself. It's a gift that shows that we are known and loved. I know John wants you to have that sense of awe. He wants you to have that sense of awe when you read John 3.16 because of how he began his gospel here in John chapter 1. This is a meditation on the one who is God's gift. It's a wonderful set of verses, one you might be somewhat familiar with. It's, it's almost a poem, isn't it, in how it's laid out and how it moves. Uh, one commentator described it as rhythmic prose. Rhythmic prose. It's an introduction that raises several of the themes of the book, light and life. Just think about how those themes run through the Gospel of John. This is a view of Christmas from the top down. This is heaven's view of Christmas. There's no angels, there's no shepherds, there's no magi here. This is what the Father is um, planning and, and what is happening in heaven as this wonderful gift is given. John believes, and, and so do we, there could be no better gift, there could be no better news than that Christ has come. And everything that you unwrap this week pales in comparison to this gift from God. It's hard to for, uh, remember that sometimes. The things that we do during this week, are, are, they're wonderful, but they're exhausting. They drive important truths sometimes from our consciousness. Or maybe this year in particular, you're thinking about all the things you don't get to do this week that you want to do, that you usually do, but you're not doing. And, oh, it's discouraging. So I would like to encourage you this morning by sharing with you five truths about the one God gave. I, 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 my goal is that God would in his kindness increase the awe and the astonishment of all of us at this wondrous gift God has given. So five truths about the one God gave. First one, here he is. Uh, the text says that he is the word. One God gave is the word. 
Now, that word word, it appears three times in this passage, uh, four times, actually, three times in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he sets it aside and comes back to it in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You might know that underneath this English word word is the Greek word logos, L-O-G-O-S as we would write in English letters. And logos is as broad as our word, English word, word is. At the foundation of it, at the foundation of the word logos is something communicated, a word, something that you can say. But it, it means more than that. It means an idea or a statement or a truth, a, a body of knowledge. You'll meet logos in school, won't you? Especially when you walk into biology class. Biologos, the study of life, the body of knowledge about life. Or psychology class, the study of the psyche. A, a word, a, a, a communication, a body of knowledge, truths about the psyche. Or ichthyology. study of fish. Theology is a study of fish. It's a word, a message about fish. Some writers of John have looked in, and thought about the time that John wrote this and the world in which he lived and look to when they try to understand what does John mean when he says in the beginning was the logos. They, they look to Greek philosophy. Uh, that was uh, uh, predominant in the day and philosophers would use the term logos to describe the big truths that drive the world, the big ideas, this, these, these overarching principles that, that make the world work. I think it's better, there's a better way, though. I think the better way to think about what does John mean when he uses the word world here is to think about John and his connection to the Old Testament. The Old Testament, of course, is John's Bible. And what does the Old Testament say about God's word? Uh, quite a bit. In the Hebrew scriptures, those 39 the beginning of our Bible, God's word repeatedly is connected to himself. It's connected to creation. And it's connected to salvation. The revelation of himself, his work, existence, and salvation. God accomplishes all those things through his word. He speaks and things happen. Just think about Genesis 1. John wants you to think about Genesis 1. He begins his book by saying, in the beginning. And this other section, uh, Genesis 1, is another passage of rhythm. And repeatedly Moses says, and God said, and God said, and God said, and it happens. Moses is not writing that way because he's running out of creativity. He's just started writes that way because he wants you to know that when God speaks, things happen. God's word is powerful and effective, and, and just his speaking makes things happen. He speaks, we know he speaks, and he Sometimes the way the Bible uses the word word, sometimes word is almost personified. Imagine In this particular, he sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. God's word is the message. So they called 911, and God did not send an ambulance to save them. He sent his word to rescue them. 
His word is the messenger, the vehicle of rescue. In the Hebrew scriptures, God's word is a source of hope. It's, it's where we get our knowledge about God from. It's a source of, uh, we cherish it, we love it. It is life for us. Have you ever been hungry for news? Hungry for news? Uh, Claire was born, our oldest daughter was born the day after Thanksgiving, 18 years ago. And we were here in Lancaster and my parents were visiting my sister in Indianapolis. She was uh, working there and uh, living and they were together in her apartment and I called, we, Kathy and I spent the day together, and then Kathy went into labor. And I called my parents and I said, we're on our way to the hospital, Kathy's in labor, uh, I'll keep you posted, and hung up the phone. There they are in Indianapolis, they have to wait. Waiting for this news. Hours go by, what's happening? How are these things, what do you do when you're waiting for news like that? Uh, it's, you're so distracted that you can't really do anything. You you, you could watch a show on television, but you can't really follow the plot. It's not entertaining or interesting to you. You certainly can't read a book. That requires too much mental energy. All that's left is to do is to surf Facebook because you can do that without thinking. You know, you just can't. You so want news. You want news. Uh, finally, when when she was born, I called. Good news. Here she is. She's born. Hungry for news. John says, here's the news. The news from God has come, and he is a person. He has flesh on. He's God's gift. He's the word. Now, secondly, this text says that God, the one that God gave, is both God himself and God's peer. He's both God himself and God's peer. Now, peer is not a word that you use very often. I understand that. Uh, you're more likely to use the word friend or acquaintance, or co-worker, or maybe even partner, or companion. But what, I use the word peer because I'm trying to capture what John says in John 1, 1, where he says the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, how, how can that be? How can you be with someone and be someone at the same time? What we have here is the building blocks of what God revealed about himself, who he is. We use the word trinity to describe who God is as he has revealed himself. Look at how Grace's doctrinal statement describes this. This is what our, we believe about the trinity. We believe in one personal living God, creator and sustainer of all things. He eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are equal in nature, attributes, and perfections, executing distinct and harmonious roles in creation, providence, and redemption. The triune God is worthy of our worship, confidence, and obedience. Now, that's a beautiful paragraph. It's well written, and it describes a doctrine that sometimes can be difficult and can be confusing. It's sometimes easier to talk about what the Trinity is not rather than what it is. We do not believe in three gods. We do not believe in one God who wears three different costumes. He puts on the Yahweh suit in the Old Testament and the Jesus suit in the Gospels and the Holy Spirit suit in the book of Acts. We do not believe that. We do not believe that the Father is one-third God and the Son is one-third God and the Holy Spirit is one-third God. You start making a list of all the things that we don't believe and you come to realize it's just easier to say 
how do we talk about the Trinity? Well, the Word was with God and the Word was God. It's just easier. As John unfolds, of course, we John uh, uses more of the language that the, the that the Godhead uses to introduce Himself: Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. Look with me at John chapter five, verse nineteen. I'm going to show you the verses up there. You can turn in your Bibles to John five nineteen. And and Jesus is speaking to some Pharisees. Jesus gave them this answer: Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by Himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, that language should strike you as a little bit odd. It, it, it should strike you as both beautiful and odd at the same time. Imagine that you're in class uh, on uh, Monday, and you say to one of your students, Hey, Charlie, what would you do this weekend? And he says, I spent the whole weekend with my father. Oh, you did? That's great. Yeah, I only do what my father does. I do nothing other than what my father does. He shows me everything, and I only do what he does because he loves me and he shows me everything he does. I mean, that's nice, but a little strange, a little odd. If you take out the onlys and the nothings in this passage, it would actually be, uh, and Charlie were to say that, you would be encouraged, you'd be pleased. What'd you do this weekend, Charlie? My father loves me. We spent the weekend together. He shows me all kinds of things. I'm, I'm trying to learn the things that he teaches me. He loves me, and we spent time together. I have learned so much from my father. It is great. Now, as a human being, doesn't that encourage you to hear, to hear a son talk about his father that way in the time that they spend? But then Jesus uses this nothing language and only language and whatever language. I only do what the Father does. He, I don't do anything by myself. We're not to see here an unhealthy relationship. What we're supposed to see in this passage is the beauty of the Father and Son relationship that exists within the Godhead. Within the Godhead there is fellowship and communion and mutual love and delight and joy. They're friends, but that word is so weak in comparison to, to the relationship that they have with one another. And when you see that, you understand why you're supposed to be astonished when you get to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave what? His one and only son. His son. The one with whom he has been for all eternity. The one who shares both nature and identity given for us. Uh, he gave him his son. He had nothing more to give, nothing of greater value to give. You read the Gospel of John, and you wonder to yourself, does God love us more than he loves his son? 
At the end of John, Jesus bears God's wrath for our sin, and we receive God's mercy. Jesus is treated as God's enemy in rebellion against him. That's the way we are, and that's the way Jesus is treated. But we are welcomed as his family. You're almost tempted to think that God must love us more than he loves his own son. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And turning to him and trusting in him brings you into this happy communion and happy fellowship. You have been adopted into the happiest family that has ever existed. In all, all reality, you have been adopted into this happiest family, this glad communion. You've received the foster care assignment of the ages when you turn and trust in Jesus. God's one and only son, who is God himself and God's own peer, now let's move on. What else does the text say? The text says that the one that God gave is creator. He's the creator. He's the creator. Now, John has been setting us up to think about this. It's natural that he would talk this way because he began even in verse 1 in the beginning. And then in verse 3, he turns to creation. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He's through him. It's, it's not sufficient, again, to say this, but you get the idea here. Who has God sent? God has sent his right-hand man through whom he accomplishes everything. Uh, the work of the Lord Jesus in creation is one of the themes of the New Testament. It shows up in a dozen places or so. Uh, look at Colossians 1, 16 and 17. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In the beginning, the word was, and through him everything came into existence. Don Carson thinks that maybe John here is, John the Apostle is uh, riffing a little bit off the Gospel of Mark. So the Gospel of Mark begins this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. There was a man, John. He talks about John right away, John the Baptist. And Carson thinks that John the Apostle may be saying to Mark a little bit, Mark, you talk about the beginning and you mentioned John. Let me tell you about the real beginning. The beginning, beginning. The beginning when there was nothing but God himself, and through God the Son, the world came into existence. That's Paul and John. This is what followers of Jesus have believed from the beginning, that the Lord Jesus is, uh, 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 that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are co-eternal and co-equal. We have, we have believed this always from the beginning. But almost immediately, in response to this belief, there have been skeptics, doubters, uh, uh, other teachers who wanted to correct this unusual belief. Don't you realize how strange what you're saying about God sounds? We should fix it and make it more rational, make it more believable. Uh, there are people who are not Christians who are never going to become Christians if they have to believe something strange like that. One of those early teachers who wanted to change things up a little bit was a man by the name of Arius. And Arius, his theory was that the sun is a creation, the first created thing 
that God made was, the Father made was the Son. And then through the Son, he made everything. And Arius had this line that he would quote, talking about God the Son. He would say, there once was a time when he was not. There once was a time when he was not. That he did not exist. Now, the church, when, when teachers like this would become influential, then some leaders of the church would gather together in meetings, we call them councils, and they would issue statements saying, no, this is what we believe, this is what we've always believed, we call those statements creeds. Well, in the moment, uh, at the council where they were going to tackle this teaching of Arius, there was a legend told about that council, and I wish it were true, maybe it is, it's probably not, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because it's beautiful and wonderful. So at this council, and violent. So at this council, there was a man whose name, uh, one of the representatives was there, St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas was at this council, the... St. Nicholas was at this council, supposedly. And Arius was standing up and talking about his belief and arguing for it. There once was a time when he was not. There once was a time when he was not. And and St. Nicholas, according to legend, was so infuriated, he got up and punched Arius in the mouth for his heresy. Now that's a Santa Claus I can believe in. Actually, I should say this. I should say this. It's not okay, it's not okay to punch heretics. Don't punch heretics, all right? Unless you're Santa Claus, and then and only then can you punch heretics. But if you're not Santa Claus, don't punch them. Pray for them instead. Uh, We don't say there once was a time when he was not. We say there never was a time when he was not. He called all things into existence. Now, I think that maybe John 2 is here in this passage preparing us for the work that Jesus is going to do in the lives of his people, the work of new creation that he does in people's lives. John's ambiguous. He's, he's intentionally mysterious. Uh, let me ask you a question. I'll show you that. How? How he's mysterious on purpose. Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Is he talking about physical light and physical life? Or is he talking about spiritual light and spiritual life? Yes. Verse 5, is he talking about spiritual light and spiritual darkness or physical light and physical darkness? Yes. He's intentionally mysterious here. It is wholly appropriate that the shepherds watching over their flocks at night in the dark see the angels in heaven and they fill the, the heavens with glorious light because the light of the world has come. He's the light. He's the creator. Now, let's move on. Number four. What else is something true about the one God gives? He's better than John. He's better than John. This is a section about beginnings, the big, big beginning, and then the beginning of the ministry in time, and all of the Gospels begin by mentioning John the Baptist. So there's the big, big beginning, and then there's the beginning, beginning. Uh, before time and space and matter, and with John. And, 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 and John the Apostle writes about John the Baptist here. It would be more convenient if their both names were both not John. But uh, John the Apostle writes about John the Baptist because, well, it seems like maybe there were some people who were honoring John the Baptist, honoring John the Baptist even ahead of the way they were honoring Jesus. I can understand why, why that would be. I, I would attribute it maybe in part to temperament issues. Here, here's what I mean. 
John the Baptist is a fiery preacher. He came and he preached repentance and he preached judgment and he and he he really gave it to the wicked people. And he just gave them, he let them have it. Um, Jesus, on the other hand, well, Jesus talked about judgment too. I mean, he was no slouch in that area, but Jesus was uh, more, more compassionate, more gentler in his preaching. Uh, Jesus himself said that listening to John was like listening to a funeral dirge and listening to him was like attending a wedding feast. So there's a difference. And some people by temperament are kind of driven to that fiery preaching. If the preacher doesn't make me sweat, it's not a real sermon, right? So there, there's some people that that's, that's kind of the way they roll. I want to feel, I want to feel f- afraid when I go to church and I hear somebody open God's word. And Jesus is just sometimes, he lets people off too easily. He's, he's just too gentle. Maybe, maybe. So, so John comes along, John the Apostle says, well, there is John the Baptist, and he is from God. Don't misunderstand. He's from God. He's an important witness. He's, in fact, the most important witness, but he's no Jesus. He seems to be comparing John the Baptist and Jesus, so you understand the significance of who Jesus is. Luke does the same thing, doesn't he, in his gospel? So you start in Luke. He tells first about the birth, the announcement of John the Baptist, and then the announcement of Jesus, then the birth story of John the Baptist and the birth story of Jesus. In every instance, he's trying to compare, contrast the two. For example, it's amazing. It's a miracle that John the Baptist was born to an older, infertile couple. That's astounding. But it's nothing compared to the fact that Jesus was born to a virgin. The song, the song that Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, sang when he was born is beautiful. It's a wonderful song. But do you know who sang when Jesus was born? Angels. John is great. Jesus is greater. That's his point here uh, that John the Apostle seems to be making, too, that the one God gave is better than John. He, he's an important witness. In fact, the text says, verse 7, so that through him all might believe. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is a sense in which you owe your uh, belief to the testimony of John the Baptist. It's through him that all might believe. John mentions him to compare. John mentions John the Baptist to compare him to Jesus, and there is no comparison. There's no comparison with anyone, as a matter of fact. There's no one like Jesus. He is God's one and some of you in your relationships, some of you in your love life are trying to find a human equivalent of a savior like Jesus and you are perpetually unhappy because there is no one like him with whom you can compare. Only he is God's great gift to us. Now let's move on finally. What else do we know about the one God gave? Number five, he is the true light. He's the true light. Verse nine, the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He is without compare and he is without replacement. There is no other alternative. He's the true light. He's the genuine light. And his coming is what we celebrate at Christmas time. Alexander Men was a, a Russian Orthodox priest. He was a representative of Christianity in the Soviet Union, right as the Soviet Union was collapsing there in the late 80s. Um, he actually was murdered uh, by Axe uh, in 1990 as, because of his 
um, representation, his, his uh, testimony for the Lord Jesus. Well, Alexander Men was introduced, on, uh, was interviewed on, on a television show that was broadcast all across Russia, and the interviewer asked him, does one need to be a Christian? And if one does, then why? And he said, his response was, it is apparent, it is obvious that human beings are searching for the divine, that every human being wants to connect with a higher power of some kind. Even, he says, communists want to know there is a higher power of some kind. He said the question we should really be asking is why Christianity among all of the other faiths in the world? And he said it's not necessarily that we have the scriptures. Other religions have books, have, have books they claim to be divine. And it's not necessarily our morality. There are other faiths that have overlapping morality with the New Testament. The difference, though, about Christianity is that we have Jesus, and no other faith has a Savior like him. He's the true light. John Huffman writes uh, about the time that he and his wife threw a white elephant gift ever been to a white elephant gift exchange party so a white elephant is a gift that is broken old that nobody wants and you bring it wrapped to a party and often there's a game played where you exchange somehow uh, inflicting on your dear friendly and friends these unwanted broken presents a white elephant gift exchange party uh, 25 years ago my wife and i were wandering around uh, a, a thrift store at, at dallas seminary there was a thrift store where people would donate things and seminary students could go get the things that they maybe needed. And we were walking to the thrift store once and there was on display a white ceramic elephant. And I thought to myself, this is perfect. So I brought it home and I was ready for the next white elephant gift exchange party. I had a literal white elephant to take with me to the white elephant gift exchange party. Well, I had it for five years and the first five years I owned it, I was waiting for the party to come didn't happen. And for the next five years, I still had hopes and that I was just waiting for the perfect white elephant gift exchange party. Now, by now, I have owned it so long that it's a cherished possession. I'm never giving it away to anybody. <laughs> when I finally set up my office, it's full of books right now, or boxes right now, but when I finally set it up, you can come and look at my white elephant that will be on display. Well, John Huffman and his wife at this party, they, it was uh, one woman's turn to open her package. It was a bag, and she reached in, and she pulled out a figurine of baby Jesus. And everybody was very confused. And John Huffman's wife said, that looks like the Jesus from our nativity set. So they all went out in the hall, and they figured out what had happened. In the hall, or in this hall of their house, they had a table, and on the table was their nativity set. And when people came in, they put all their gifts underneath the table, and somebody jostled the table, and baby Jesus fell out and into the bag. And he said, what shoddy craftsmanship. Joseph was a carpenter. He would never put his newborn baby in a manger that he could fall out of. But anyway, this cheap replica, Jesus fell out and fell into the bag. And so when it came time to open the white elephant gifts, they pull out baby Jesus. They all laughed about what had happened, and they put Jesus back in the manger, and then went on to their party. And John Huffman said, that incident, though, sticks in my mind. How could it be that we would ever think that Jesus is the gift that no one wants? The broken gift. The gift that you talk about just for fun. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable. God 
God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and we are astonished. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come into your presence, and we do so hopeful this morning that you, by your great kindness, through the power of your Holy Spirit and through your word, would cultivate in us astonishment and joy over the gift that is your Son. Lord, we confess to you that we often get distracted. We get distracted by the things that we do at this time of year, the joy that we have, the traditions that we follow. This year in particular, we're distracted by the traditions that we can't do and the things that we can't um, enjoy. Lord, we're distracted by things and relationships and people and how how we need your mercy. You who have rescued us through your son, now would you also rescue us from our deficiency of awe, our lack of astonishment, the ho-hum boringness that can come when we think about or when we don't think aright about your good gift. Fill us with awe and wonder and astonishment again, we pray. Do that by your mercy, we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.